Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about healthcare and preventative cancer screenings with Dr. Reza Yasubi. Dr. Yasubi is Assistant Professor of Health Policy at the Yale School of Public Health, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. Reza, why don't we start off with you telling me a little bit more about yourself and what exactly it is that you do? All right. Um, so I am an industrial and systems engineer by training. Um, the origin of industrial and systems engineering overlaps with um, industrial revolution and the time that we began mass production and the goal was to improve uh, production and manufacturing systems through um, decreasing cost uh, in, and improving quality uh, and maximizing productivity. So that's uh, where the field started. And uh, I got involved in healthcare during my PhD studies. My advisor had uh, funding to study the cost effectiveness of uh, different cancer screening for colorectal cancer and uh, uh, through developing simulation models. So that's what I do. I develop uh, computer simulation models which uh, uh, in which we try to um, create a computer prototype of a real system. And the goal is to um, do what-if analysis for scenarios that are very difficult or infeasible to implement in real life. So for example, if you have a hospital and you would like to know how you can decrease the waiting time, um, you may consider uh, doubling your staff members, but this is a costly uh, decision and may, it may not be feasible, and that's uh, where uh, simulation models can play an important role because you can create a prototype of your system and uh, play with it. Um, you know, you can add your nurses, add your physicians, and then see the impact of those decisions on your uh, performance measures. And uh, um, my research has been mainly uh, focused on developing uh, such models for uh, investigating the impact of different health policy and health decisions or guidelines on the health of a population and also the resources that we need uh, to implement such policies and decisions. So, I mean, this is uh, incredibly timely, I would think, you know, in the current healthcare climate where costs are skyrocketing and we're starting to ask the question of how much bang or how much value are we getting for our buck. But let, let's talk a little bit, uh, since you mentioned your, your PhD thesis work in colorectal screening, for example. So tell us a little bit more about that and what you found, because for our listeners, there are a variety of methods of screening for colorectal cancer, everything from, you know, 
digital rectal exam and fecal occult blood to uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy and and or colonoscopy to barium enema to now virtual colonoscopy and people have seen the commercial where people are swallowing cameras and presumably each of those has varying costs and varying pickup rates Um, so so what did you find in your research so uh, it was done about uh, maybe six, seven years ago. So some of these tests that you, you just mentioned uh, were not either widely available or would not be available at all. Uh, but uh, the, the screening methods that we considered was mainly FOBT and uh, sigmoidoscopy and colonoscopy. And uh, the main finding was that um, uh, FOBT and sigmoidoscopy are the, are cost effective. So if you don't want to invest a lot of money, go with you know fecal occult uh, blood test. And if you have more money, uh, sigma, uh, colonoscopy would uh, yield a much better health overall in your population. So that was the main conclusion. And then, uh, of course, you know, depending on how you use this test, then uh, the the benefit of this test would vary. Like you might use FOBT while you are, I don't know, 40 years old or 50 years old, and then depending on the test result, you may use uh, colonoscopy. So there is a combination also of these tests that you can use and uh, can be uh, even you know, better in terms of cost effectiveness. So, I mean, but presumably all of these models that you you use um, are go into to guidelines, right? So mm-hmm. this is how we get to, you know, you should have a colonoscopy every 10 years as opposed to having it every year is because it's more likely that you can still pick up cancers even if you have a colonoscopy every 10 years, uh, that you really don't need it every year and that it becomes cost prohibitive. But for the general public who mm-hmm. are reading about these models, and we've seen this in mammography, for example, in prostate cancer screening, mm-hmm. there is sometimes a backlash against models that talk about cost. So can you talk a little bit about the balance between cost and value? Um, that is to say, making policy on the basis of cost alone may sometimes be something that the general public will think is absolutely ludicrous, because how can you put a cost on me getting cancer? Yes, absolutely. And um you know whether we uh, like it or not, we have limited resources, and uh, you know different countries fund their healthcare system differently. Whether it is through uh, taxes or premiums, but uh, at the end we have limited uh, amount of money that we have to spend, and uh, the goal of cost-effectiveness analysis is to spend the money we have more wisely. So we don't want to spend money on um, uh, maybe programs that uh, the added benefit in terms of health is trivial. You know, we want to be smart in terms of uh, where we want to put our money. And that's uh, what we do in cost-effectiveness analysis. And particularly with, you know, cancer screening, uh, 
cost is not um, does not include only the out-of-pocket cost. There is also some indirect cost. There is also side effects of some of these tests that we also want to minimize. So uh, I don't think there is anyone who wants to use colonoscopy every month. Um, but then the question is, how often should I use colonoscopy? And that's where uh, we uh, rely on modeling. And the advantage of modeling is that you can incorporate information and um, from multiple sources. You know, you can capture the benefit of your test uh, on the population, on the health of a population, and also the amount of resources that you may need to achieve uh, the certain level of health that you desire. But at the end of the day, um, the, the whole idea behind cost-effective analysis is that uh, we have limited resources, and we need to be wise about how to consume our resources. And uh, yeah. Um, so you know, for, uh, so I think you may, you bring up a few points that are really critical to hit home, and the first is that it's not just the cost of the test. That presumably each of these tests have other costs, not only indirect costs to the system, but also costs in terms of side effects. And we also have to look at the incremental benefit. So, for example, in uh, mammography with the latest debate, um, there has been this whole concept of overdiagnosis, finding <laughs> cancers at such an early stage that it may not truly impact longevity. Um, and these presumably are things that you look at in terms of colorectal cancer as well. Exactly. There, there is, uh, you know, there are uh, two types of error that we may see. You know, the, the false positive and uh, a false negative. So we might use a test, and uh, the test may mistakenly tell us that we have cancer. So there is cost associated for it, both emotional and financial. So that's again, uh, something that we need to take into account. So when we talk about cost, we are not just talking about money, we are talking about uh, other direct and indirect costs as well. Or, and we might need to take a day off to you know, go, go and um, have our tests. So we incorporate those uh, costs in our models as well um, to have a more efficient uh, approach to using uh, the, our resources. So the other question that comes up, you know, when you talk about cost effectiveness and, and the fact that there are limited resources, I can imagine that some of our listeners may be pushing back a little bit and saying, well, aren't you really talking about rationing care? How would you respond to that? Um, well, it depends on... Um, there, there, there are certainly there are uh, certain controversy around cost effectiveness. It, it depends on how we define health in our analysis. For example, you might define health as uh, life years saved. You know, so if your goal is to maximize the number of life years that you are saving through a program, then you might favor, for example, children. Uh, as opposed to seniors, or um, in in uh, some models, we might uh, try to maximize the number of uh, death prevented. So that then it becomes a different uh, performance measure or criteria. Um, well, 
So I know, it, yeah. Yeah, so so clearly, I mean, uh, cost-effectiveness as I see it is really about making choices, exactly. very much like you said. Yeah. And so the choices between how you utilize a given set of resources um, needs to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people may say, you know, as opposed to other models of healthcare delivery, So, Mm -hmm. for example, what some will call socialized medicine, Mm -hmm. other people will Mm -hmm. call universal health care, systems like what they have, for example, in Canada and the UK, uh, where there is a single payer uh, system. They would argue that perhaps cost effectiveness analyses are more uh, important in those situations. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., how much, I mean, some people may say, you know what, the analyses that you do go into guidelines, which then affect what my insurance company will pay or not pay. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm paying a higher premium than if I was on, you know, a, a lower, uh, less uh, well-covered insurance plan. So shouldn't I be able to, if I wanted to, pay for whatever test I want? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. But again, um, you know, one of the benefits of these analysis is that it it, uh, lets you to make informed decisions. It can show you that, well, if you want to use this cancer screening at this point, there is, you know, with this uh, probability, you you might have a false positive test. And these are important things to think about, that if you know the result of the test, are you going, does that change your uh, decision? And if your decision will change based on the result of the test, then it makes sense maybe to have the test, but Otherwise, why would you like to have that test? Except that now you have, you know, this false positive that may not be very pleasant. Um, So again, you know, it is all about making better decisions, whether, uh, you know, whatever uh, label we like to, uh, you know, put it's a matter of making uh, informed decisions. Well, you know, this is such a hot topic, and we're going to pick it back up right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about healthcare and preventative cancer screenings with my guest, Dr. Reza Yusubi. Smoking can be a very strong habit that involves the potent drug nicotine, and there are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking. But smoking cessation is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments and to decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies. Smoking cessation programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The smoking cessation service at Smilo operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based, and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications and smoking cessation counseling. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. For more information, go to YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Reza Yasubi. If you were with us prior to the break, you know that we were talking a lot about cost effectiveness. How do you get the most bang for your healthcare buck? And given the current healthcare economics and the current climate in this country, that's an important issue. So I want to pick it up there, uh, Reza, and talk about, you know, what do you see as some of the major issues affecting healthcare delivery in the U.S.? Uh, so I'm coming from, um, you know, systems engineering field. So from systems perspective, and in my opinion, maybe uh, one of the major challenges in um, uh, healthcare systems uh, at the present time might be uh, the misalignment of incentives. And by that, I mean uh, the way that we are uh, rewarding uh, uh, health providers may not be uh, necessarily the 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 best way to uh, motivate them to take actions that are also uh, optimal or the best for the entire system. For example, you know, back to our cancer screening example, if we are reimbursing our uh, you know healthcare provider based on fee for service, then that means that the more patient they see, the more uh, uh, money they earn. Uh, but we know that you know for many patients, we need to spend a little bit more time to. Uh, uh, convince them, for example, or to provide them with more information about the benefit of cancer screening. Or we might, uh, you know, need to use this time to address their questions, their concerns, so that we improve uh, their compliance to some of these uh, guidelines. And, you know, if, if someone wants to take that time to, uh, you know, invest in improving the health of that patient, they may not be necessarily rewarded by the way that we are uh, you know, re uh, reimbursing them. Or, you know, another uh, maybe uh, timely example is vaccination. We know that there are some parents who are not uh, comfortable with vaccinating their, their uh, kids. And if I'm a, you know, doctor who is being reimbursed fee for service, I can just say, well, would you like to vaccinate your, your kid? And say, no, and say, okay, next pa patient, you know. But the, if we have a different incentive uh, system, we can take this time, take this opportunity to uh, address their concern. It might take longer, you know, the, uh, maybe a five minute visit would now be a half an hour visit, but that means that we uh, help them to make, again, more informed decisions that they are happy with and, the, and also is contributing to the overall uh, performance of our healthcare systems. So, I, you know, I, not that I disagree with you, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. You know, I'm sure that some physicians are sitting in the crowd saying, well, geez, I mean, that by definition means that you are assuming that I will favor my paycheck over my patients um, and that I will not take the time to talk to my patients and that I will, you know, do a colonoscopy every day on a patient uh, simply because I get paid for each service, um, and that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily ring true for, for many physicians. How would you exactly. respond to that? You are absolutely right, and th the point is not that people or physicians do not want to do the right thing. It is just the system is not set up to reward uh, or to motivate such actions or make it more comfortable for everyone to, uh, when they see a patient, you know, they, they need to spend time, they can, uh, 
they can do that and, and get rewarded for making the right decision. It is not saying that, well, they, they prefer their paycheck to the health of patients. It is mainly uh, making sure that they are also financially secured in terms of if they, if they decide to uh, spend uh, both time and resources on, for example, improving the uh, their population compliance to cancer screening or to vaccination. So they go uh, and uh, maybe they can put additional effort uh, to increase that compliance level. So so in terms of a, a, a redesigned model of physician incentives, how would you see that system working? I mean, there's a number of mm-hmm. models out there that are being bantered about, but do you have some opinions mm-hmm. on that? Uh, I know there are some alternatives, and um, I don't have any strong opinion about you know which, which one is the best. But uh, my my point is that it it might be a good idea, and it's a good time to also uh, invest on those uh, uh, you know options. That maybe uh, the traditional way that we are uh, reimbursing our, our healthcare delivery systems are not the best option. Maybe we can go move toward maybe. Uh, outcome adjusted or performance adjusted to to at least some portion of uh, the uh, the payments mm-hmm. maybe can be contingent on the outcomes. And certainly that's where healthcare in this country is moving, um, pending the uh, upcoming election. Yes. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, under the Affordable Care Act, as you know, um, the physician incentives are going to be realigned really more towards the triple aim, right? Mm-hmm. So guaranteeing access, uh, outcomes, uh, especially patient-reported outcomes, um, and population health. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about how do we really use resources, not just for individual patients, but for the entire population. Um, and so coming to the forefront is really access patient quality safety those kinds of initiatives yes. some of the work that you mentioned uh, at the at the top of the show in terms of your industrial engineering background I think plays very much into uh, how we can improve mm-hmm. access safety quality um, can you tell us a little bit about some of your thoughts in terms of using industrial engineering concepts or management concepts to improve that yes so you know, but there is this uh, maybe a myth that people believe that uh, there is this uh, iron triangle that on one side you have uh, cost, you have access, and you have quality. So if you want to reduce cost, you will hurt, you know, access and quality. Or if you want to improve your uh, quality, you were hel- you would have to increase cost and reduce access. But through systems thinking and systems engineering, you can... Uh, move this triangle up and down through efficiency. And that's uh, what I think would be uh, very important at this time, that uh, when we say, well, we need to um, expand the access to healthcare, that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to increase costs. It means that through better decision, more efficient decision, and through more efficient allocation, we can still contain costs, but have better access and better quality. And um, I mean, I hope that that's the uh, that's something we will see in the uh, near future. That, um, like, by uh, expanding the access, we are essentially allowing we are um, 
reducing the number of people who are not uh, insured. And we know that you know, data and evidence suggest that you know, people who are not insured are more likely to visit uh, emergency rooms. Th th that's very costly. And uh, you know, taxpayers or other people are, will end up paying for the emergency room visit because those you know, people who are not uninsured will not be also able to pay for the emergency visit. So now if we can improve the access to healthcare, there is a high chance that we can prevent some of those uh, severe complications and reduce the number of, for example, ER visits, and that's cost reducing, Why, at the same time we are also expanding the access. And uh, yeah, I hope, I will, you know, we can see uh, 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 more of that uh, sort of actions in practice. So, so a lot of people talk about that, and, and logically, it, it seems to have face validity. Um, have people actually done the mathematical models given the current data to suggest that if we did insure the entire population, how much would the emergency visits decline? What would be the cost savings? And would that be able to pay for this improved access? Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any models that have studied that. Um, no, not really. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, because presumably the emergency room visits will never go down to zero. Um, but the idea, as you say, is is quite right that you know the emergency room visits are significantly more costly um, and treatment is significantly more costly than prevention yeah. um, and so uh, preventing disease uh, will be more cost-effective than treating it and and that's really the whole cost-effectiveness yes. analysis behind vaccination and cancer prevention screens exactly yes exactly so, so tell us um, a little bit about um, where you see uh, the safety and quality piece fitting into this whole puzzle. <clears throat> about safety, I know that this is this has been a struggle in many healthcare systems, and I've heard that you know the uh, many hospitals or, or many healthcare delivery systems are, are hiring people from aerospace, for example, you know, industry, because they, they have been able to improve their safety measures significantly. So I think, uh, you know, in, in many other fields, there have been significant advancement in terms of safety of their products, of their, uh, you know, work uh, process. And um, we have this technology that we can uh, take advantage and benefit in the context of healthcare. And, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, through this interdisciplinary work, we can, uh, you, you know, bridge the gap between the these fields for uh, improving the, um, the quality of care. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, can you talk a little bit about the dynamic between cost of care and quality care? I mean, is, is high quality care more costly or is it mm -hmm. in fact less costly than low mm -hmm. quality care? Th that, that's a wonderful question because that was another myth that, you know, if you increase quality, if you improve quality, you will add to the cost. But like many other, uh, in many other systems, like production, if you produce a part that is not good quality and you are going to use that part in the later stage of production, you also have to pay for that uh, 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 faulty part. So same idea if we do not uh, provide high quality care for our patient we might see an increase in number of readmissions to hospital readmissions so again 
these things, I, from my perspective, go hand in hand, and um, they are not necessarily in, 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 in contradiction with each other. So. Right. So, so the whole idea of high quality care reduces complication rates, reducing complication rates ultimately reduces cost. And so I guess the whole concept uh, in moving towards uh, high quality systems and using kind of that systems mm -hmm. thinking is to really be able to, in a replicable manner, ensure that you have a high quality system to provide high quality care mm -hmm. with lower complications so that you can actually reduce cost. Um, and with mass production, to, yes. to go back to industrial <laughs> engineering, um, or mass processes yes. uh, reduce cost in that way. Is that kind of the concept? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and an important thing is to recognize that uh, having an efficient and good and high quality healthcare system requires collective action. So if I do something now, someone else will be affected. If I'm a like a patient who visit a healthcare system, there are different elements or there are different participants in the healthcare system who will interact with the patient. So if I, we need to recognize that uh, the actions uh, that we take today will have some consequences and implication for the uh, a week from now or two weeks from now. So uh, that is another uh, system perspective that we need to um, take into account in designing our healthcare systems. Dr. Reza Yasubi is an assistant professor of health policy at the Yale School of Public Health. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.